0: Well, my name is Stephen Martins. I am a staff apologist and junior scholar in residence at the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And as an apologist uh, derived from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where the Greek apologia means to provide a reasoned defense, as in the court of law, I'm entrusted with explaining why I believe what I believe as a Christian and to use apologetics as an integral component to evangelism, which is deconstructing worldviews that are foreign to the gospel of Christ and presenting the full-orbed gospel that applies to all areas of life as the only worldview that makes sense of reality. Uh, I've applied this as I featured as a guest speaker at York University, Sheridan College, uh, the University of West Indies in Trinidad, El Salvador, and even in debate and dialogue settings with atheists and Muslims, both locally and internationally. My role as junior scholar-in-residence with the Ezra Institute is to research, write articles, and develop curriculums for training programs to equip the church in fulfilling the Great Commission, and to also work towards my Master's of Arts in Christian Apologetics. I'm a local Canadian, born and raised in Toronto, married to a beautiful Colombian wife who serves alongside me, and I am privileged to be here to address you this morning. So as I mentioned, uh, this conference is certainly not to instill any hatred, as perhaps uh, some people might be a little bit afraid, uh, touching on the issue of ISIS or radical Islam, and sometimes it may be seen as controversial. But that's not what we're here for. We're here to present the knowledge and understanding of what Islam is according to the Islamic text, making a differentiation between the religion and the person, and understanding that we are here to love our Muslim neighbors as beloved Christians and, and missionaries, and understanding how we can reach out to that people, to that culture. Of course, it is uh, intercultural, it's multicultural. Islam does not contain itself or restrain itself to a particular ethnicity. There are various different ethnicities that embrace Islam. And we are learning more about the religious beliefs so we understand how to approach them regarding that. For those familiar the new, with the news on ISIS in the Middle East, you'll be well aware of the refugee crisis that has been all over the news. Thousands seeking asylum in Europe and other parts of the world. Even if you haven't been keeping up with ISIS, you may have heard the criticism uh, leveled right now at the government for not opening the doors to mass Syrian refugees. Now, for example, Thomas Mulcair, a leader of the NDP, now states that ISIS is not a threat to Canada or to Canadians as long as they remain within their territories in the Middle East. But now ISIS, the ones behind the attack on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, for those of us that remember it, perhaps will never forget, the shootings and beheadings in France, the massacre on the beaches of Tunisia, are believed to be smuggling in militants through the mass refugee group seeking asylum. This has been uncovered given that a Hungary news channel, M1, reported that at least two terrorists were uncovered via photographs on social media after entering Europe as refugees. ISIS is currently regarded by the United States government as the biggest threat to North American security. It's grown beyond the Middle East. It has more territory, it has more money, more weapons than Al-Qaeda, and it's also more experienced, consisting of core members of Saddam Hussein's former military. With the most recent advancements of ISIS, questions are still being asked about the true face of Islam. Is it a religion of peace, as so many have claimed? Now, there are Islamic communities, both locally and worldwide, who earnestly believe that Islam is a religion of peace. Or is it a religion of war and violence, a compulsive religion that enforces its beliefs upon non-believers, even going so far as to target its own people? Now, this controversy and divide on Islam isn't entirely related to the acts of Islamic extremist groups. It actually digs deeper into the concept of jihad, as found in the Quran, the Muslim holy book. Now, if a group that called themselves Christians, for example, were to carry out terrorist attacks the Christian community could rightly say that the behaviors and actions behind the group were contradictory to the Bible and that they aren't what they say they are, Christians. However, with Islam, it's not actually the same case in that Islamic groups that participate in terror attacks could be identified as Muslim given that their actions are based on the Quranic understanding of jihad. The response from the Islamic community can vary when there is a public questioning. When the response can be either an opportunity for them to engage in peaceful dialogue, participating in what is known as dawah, which means a call to Islam, or it could be antagonistic, where hate or bigotry and Islamophobia may be leveled against the questioners. Now, personally, I haven't been on the receiving end of the hostile response of the Islamic community. Instead, experiencing more peaceful reactions, more friendly reactions. But that is because the Muslim is almost always participating in Dawah with me, trying to call me to Islam, and I'm participating in biblical evangelism, calling him to the truth of the gospel of Christ. But it doesn't take much work to find the latest news piece where someone's negative assessment of the Islamic belief system is characterized as Islamic phobic, or even classified as bigotry. Now, well, what defines the Islamic tradition and worldview? That's the question that we're faced with. Well, there are three sources that can be referred to as the Sunnah, which is uh, firstly the Quran, the revelation of Allah revealed unto Muhammad, the Hadith, the collection of traditions and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and the Sirah, the traditional Muslim biographies of Muhammad. Consider the following verses in the Quran, where Surah 33, Ayah 21 from the Quran states, "Ye have indeed in the messenger of Allah a beautiful pattern of conduct, For anyone whose hope is in Allah and the final day, and who engages much in the praise of Allah. Surah 68, Ayah 4 reads, And verily you, O Muhammad, are on an exalted standard of character. So according to these Quranic passages, Muhammad is honored and praised when men imitate Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, the supposed one who received the revelation from Allah. He is the standard by which men ought to be measured by in all spheres of life. So Islam is therefore defined by the Islamic texts, not by political leaders of our day who may soft-pedal the true nature of Islam. It is the Islamic texts that define what Islam is. Now, the consensus of Islamic Jihad. Ayatollah Khomeini, who lived from 1902 to 1989, was a revolutionary and politician, the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the leader of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, he claimed the following on Quranic Jihad. Islam makes it incumbent on all adult males, provided they are not disabled or incapacitated, to prepare themselves for the conquest of other countries so that the writ of Islam is obeyed in every country in the world. But those who study Islamic holy war will understand why Islam wants to conquer the whole world. Those who know nothing of Islam pretend that Islam counsels against war. Those who say this are witless. Islam says, kill all the unbelievers just as they would kill you all. Does this mean that Muslims should sit back until they are devoured by the unbelievers? Islam says, kill them, the non-Muslims, put them to the sword and scatter their armies. Does this mean sitting back until non-Muslims overcome us? Islam says, kill in the service of law those who may want to kill you. Does this mean that we should surrender to the enemy? Islam says whatever good there is exists thanks to the sword and in the shadow of the sword. People cannot be made obedient except with the sword. The sword is the key to paradise, which can be opened only for the holy warriors. There are hundreds of other Quran, Quranic Psalms and Hadith sayings of the prophet urging Muslims to value war and to fight. Does all this mean that Islam is a religion that prevents men from waging war? I spit upon those foolish souls who make such a claim. This is Ayatollah Khomeini. He he is the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who served from March 2003 to August 2014, had the following to say about moderate Islam. He said, these descriptions are very ugly. It is offensive and an insult to our religion. There is no moderate or immoderate Islam. Islam is Islam, and that's it. He said this while speaking at Canal D TV's arena program. So this was all live on, on television. Sayyid Kutbi, uh, from 1906 to 1966, an Egyptian author, educator, Islamic theorist, and the leader of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in the 1950s and 1960s, said dominion should be reverted to Allah alone, namely to Islam, that holistic system he conferred upon men. An all-out offensive, a jihad should be waged against modernity so that this moral rearmament could take place. The ultimate objective is to reestablish the kingdom of Allah upon earth. Ibn Warraq, a former Muslim and author of the book "Why I'm Not a Muslim," said, "There may be moderate Muslims, but Islam itself is not moderate. There is no difference between Islam and Islamic fundamentalism." At most, there is a difference of degree, but not of kind. All the tenets of Islamic fundamentalism are derived from the Quran, the Sunnah, and the Hadith. Islamic fundamentalism is a totalitarian construct derived by Muslim jurists from the fundamental and defining texts of Islam. The fundamentalists with greater logic and coherence than so-called moderate or liberal Muslims have made Islam the basis of a radical utopian ideology that aims to replace capitalism and democracy as the reigning world system. Bernard Lewis, he's a PhD historian, wrote in his book, The Political Language of Islam, that the overwhelming majority of classical theologians, jurists, and traditionalists, that is to say Muslim specialists in the Quran, uh, Hadith, Life of Muhammad, and Islamic law, understood the obligation of jihad in a military sense. He wrote in his book, The Crisis of Islam, Holy War and Unholy Terror, that for most of the 14 centuries of recorded Muslim history, jihad was most commonly interpreted to mean armed struggle for the defense or advancement of Muslim power. A Muslim scholar, Ibn Khaldun, who lived from 1332 to 1406, wrote that jihad is a religious duty because of the universalism of the Muslim mission and the obligation to convert everybody to Islam, either by persuasion or by force the other religious groups did not have a universal mission, and the Holy War was not a religious duty for them. But Islam is under obligation to gain power over other nations. Now, why is it important that we need to understand jihad? Michael K. Nagata, he's the Major General and Special Operations Commander in the Middle East for the United States of America, admitted that he did not know what motivated Islamic jihadists, reportedly saying, we do not understand the movement, and until we do, we are not going to defeat it. We have not defeated the idea. We don't even understand the idea. We need to understand what jihad is and how it is, it's understood in the Islamic texts if we want to understand our, uh, the Muslim background of ISIS. The Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, had this to say about jihad. Islamist jihadists have declared war on Canada and other democratic countries leaving Canada no option but to face that head-on and deal with it. The international jihadist movement has declared war. They've declared war on anybody, on anybody who does not think and act exactly as they wish they would think and act. They have declared, declared war on any country like ourselves that values freedom, openness, and tolerance. And we may not like this and wish it would go away, but it's not going to go away. And the reality is that we are going to have to confront it. But this recent development, the emergence of the so-called Islamic State and its sudden control of vast territory with vast amounts of financial resources has escalated this to a whole new global level. Now, Stephen Harper was clear in declaring the attack on Parliament Hill a terrorist attack organized by ISIS to strike fear into the government and people of Canada and I'm not favoring any particular p- political group. But both Thomas Mulcair and Justin Trudeau, however, refused to take ISIS as a threat to the Canadian people, believing that Canada should withdraw altogether from fighting the threat of ISIS in the Middle East. Well, the question is, what is Islamic Jihad? I've mentioned it, it's been quoted, it's been cited. What is it? Jihad means to strive or to struggle to, in endeavor, ever, and can be translated as holy war, while taking on various other meanings and applications. According to the Islamic mind, there are actually two parts to this world, Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam. Dar al-Harb means the house of war, which refers to all non-Muslim countries or geographical areas and regions which are not under Islamic Sharia law. It means house of war because it means that Islam is at war with all other opposing worldviews and ideologies. Dar al-Islam means the house of Islam, referring to all Muslim countries or geographical areas and regions which are under Islamic Sharia law. You are either in the house of war or you're in the house of Islam. Now, it's often in dialogues and conversations, however, that Muslims often mention surah, Uh, to Ayah 256 of the Quran, reciting, there is no compulsion in religion. And it appears to be innocent enough, and it is this passage on which many moderate Muslims cling to when making their case that Islam is a religion of peace. But there is a hermeneutic factor, a factor of interpretation by which we must consider when reading these respective passages that advocate a peaceful Islam. The Quranic texts of the early years are peaceful in many respects. But the Quranic texts of the latter years supposedly abrogate, supersede, or nullify the earlier dated chapters of the Quran. As often quoted text is also Surah 109, Ayah 1-6, to which reads, Say, O disbelievers, I worship not that which ye worship, nor worship ye that which I worship. And I shall not worship that which ye worship, nor will ye worship that which I worship. unto you, your religion, and to me, my religion. In other words, you do as you will, you worship who you will, and I will do as I will, and I will worship as I will. And we will respect each other's religions. But what is the principle of abrogation? The Quran can be divided into two sections. The earlier surahs are considered the Meccan chapters, while the later surahs are considered the Medinan chapters. The Meccan surahs are peaceful. But the Medinan surahs are violent and a call for jihad. And it is the Medinan surahs which replace the peaceful texts of the Quran. Where do we find the principle of abrogation in the Quran? In Surah 2, Ayah 106, which reads, Whatever a verse or revelation do we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring a better one similar to it. Know you not that Allah is able to do all things? The question could then be asked, why don't most Westerners know this? It's important to understand what is often employed by many faithful Muslims, the principle of taqiyah. Taqiyah is where Muslims are permitted to lie to non-Muslims in order that they may advance Islam. In other words, deception or lying is justified so long as the end is the conversion of the unbeliever. The end justifies the means. The Quran provides some insight into Takiyah, where Surah 3, Ayah 28 states, Let not the believers take for friends or helpers, unbelievers rather than believers. If any do that, in nothing will there be help from Allah except that you guard yourselves fully against them. The word for guard is Tukatan from the root word Takiyah. What does that then mean? that when the odds are against the Muslim and the majority are non-Muslims, they are to mislead others as to protect their lives and their faith. Now, this is consistent given that Muhammad said war is deceit. And the house of war, being non-Muslim regions, is where the Quran dictates that deceit ought to be used to mislead their enemies. Ibn Kathir, a respected commentator of the Quran, writes the following about Taqiyyah. Allah said next, unless you indeed fear danger from them. Meaning, except those Muslims who in some areas or times fear for their safety from the disbelievers. In this case, such believers are allowed to show friendship to disbelievers outwardly, but never inwardly. For instance, Al-Bukhari recorded that Abu ad said, we smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. Takiyah is allowed until the day of resurrection. The logic behind this is that taqiyah, deception, is allowed until the end of the world because as non-believers we are enemies of Allah and therefore we are unworthy of knowing the truth until we embrace Islam and become Muslims ourselves. Consider that this is consistent with the words of Jesus when speaking of Satan. He says, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. The Quran also explains the position that Muslims ought to assume in public society. In Surah 47, Ayah 35. Be not weary and faint-hearted, crying for peace when ye should be uppermost. For Allah is with you and and will never put you in loss for your good deeds. In the final revelation given unto Muhammad, Surah 9, Ayah 5, reveals the true nature of Islam. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them and take them captive and besiege them and prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent and establish worship and pay the poor due, then leave their way free. Lo, Allah is forgiving, merciful. Slay the idolaters, it says. It also reveals the true nature of Islam towards Christians and Jews in Surah 9, Ayah 29 and 33. Fight against such of those who have been given the Scripture. Who, are, who is that? Jews and Christians. As believe not in Allah nor the last day. And forbid that which Allah hath forbidden by his messenger. And follow not the religion of truth until they pay the tribute readily. Being brought low, he it is, he it is who hath sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth, that he may cause it to prevail over all religion, however, however much the idolaters may be adverse. Here's the interpretation. If the Christians and Jews do not embrace Islam, they are to be fought, unless they agree to pay the tribute, which is a form of taxation and a manner of humbling the disbeliever. In the end, it will be Islam that will dominate over all the other religions of the world. The Quran provides insight as to how Muslims are to carry out their jihad, in which Surah 9, Ayah 73 reads, O Prophet, strive hard against the unbelievers and the hypocrites, and be Unyielding to them, and their abode is hell, and evil is the destination. Who are the unbelievers? Whoever is not a Muslim. Who are the hypocrites? Whoever claims to be a Muslim but is not living or behaving as a Muslim. This is the case with ISIS, in which all those who disagreed with their interpretation, similar to those who disagree with Abdallah Wab's interpretation during the time of Wahabism in Saudi Arabia, are considered infidels, that is to say, unbelievers even if they claimed to be Muslims. I'll give you an example. This is relating to Wabism. Uh, One of the things that was taught in Wabism was that you could not, for example, honor the dead. You could not set up tombstones and visit the and this area. Uh, If you were to do so, even though you claimed to be a Muslim, you would be declared an infidel because you would be disagreeing with the interpretation and you'd be going against the order. One of the reasons why that was given was because they believed that that was some form of worship that distracted your attention from Allah. Now, we can examine the stark contrast between the Islamic text and the Christian text in which Surah 48, Ayah 29 reads, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and those who are with him are severe against disbelievers and merciful among themselves. They are severe against disbelievers. That is what Muslims are to be towards Christians and Jews. And yet, despite claiming that we Christians and Muslims serve the same God, we find a very different God in Christianity. Jesus, for example, said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Matthew chapter five, verse 43 to 45. The violent passages of the Quran are not isolated minorities. They are prevalent in the Quran as Surah nine, Ayah 123 states, "O you who believe fight those of the unbelievers who are near to you and let them find in you hardness and know that Allah is with those who guard against evil. ISIS is being consistent with the Quran in that they are enforcing Surah 2, Ayah 191 in the Quran. And slay them wherever you find them and drive them out of the places whence they drove you out for persecution is worse than slaughter. Can you believe that for persecution is worse than slaughter? This is what we're witnessing. Displaced people groups driven up by ISIS. Christians being killed. As every news channel has a report of these different tragedies in surrounding nations. The Quran lays out what these terrorist groups are attempting to achieve. To become martyrs as surah 9 ayah 111 reads. Surely Allah has bought of the believers their persons and their property for this. And that they shall have the garden what's that paradise. They fight in Allah's way, so they slay and are slain. A promise which is binding on him in the Torah, Torah and the Injil Gospels and the Quran. And who is more faithful to his covenant than Allah? Rejoice, therefore, in the pledge which you have made. And that is the mighty achievement. Martyrdom, which is dying for your faith to be rewarded richly in the afterlife, is supposedly aligned with the Torah, the Pentateuch of the Hebrew Bible, and the Old Testament, and the Gospels. So the Torah and the Gospels, this twisted idea of martyrdom in the Islamic faith. And yet we don't find either the Torah or the Gospels supporting this concept, this Islamic salvific concept of martyrdom, given that the Quran is foreign to even the redemptive framework and history of the Christian scriptures. This is why the attack on Parliament Hill happened. A lone gunman, knowing that he was going up against a whole army of security, facing inevitable death, but doing so to attain the promise of paradise and to accomplish the will of Allah. Now, moderate Muslims will always claim that terrorism has no connection to Islam, that that's not the true Islam. And they'll go as far as to condemn it publicly. But the very principle of terrorism, which is to strike terror, is actually rooted in the Quran. Surah 8, Ayah 60 records, Against them, make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including steeds of war, to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of God and your enemies and others besides whom ye may not know, but whom God doth know. Whatever ye shall spend in the cause of God shall be repaid unto you, and ye shall not be treated unjustly. There is a reason why ISIS is so well funded and why other Islamic terrorist groups are financially capable of launching continual assaults and advances. It's because whatever ye shall spend in the cause of God shall be repaid unto you in this surah. This idea of giving and receiving is what has led many radical Muslims to finance ISIS, especially those who cannot participate in the fight for whatever reason. This motivates them to support the fight. They'll give, knowing that Allah will somehow give back to them. This idea of striking terror into the hearts of the people who reject Islam is found in Surah 8, Ayah 12. When your Lord revealed to the angels, I am with you, therefore make firm those who believe, I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve, therefore strike off their heads and strike off every fingertip of them. This is in the Quran. This is not in some book outside the Quran. This is in the Quran. This is why ISIS beheads Christians and everyone else who rejects Islam because such evil and violent texts are written in the Quran. Surah 47, Ayah 4 also reads, So when you meet in battle those who disbelieve, then smite the necks until when you have overcome them. Beheadings are considered one of the most humiliating executions because the person is on his knees and bowed down as his head is cut. Consider that one of the forms of execution is also mockery of the crucifixion of Jesus, which Muslims, of course, don't believe actually happens to Jesus. But this form of mockery is evidently geared towards the Christians and Jews. In Surah 5, ayah 33, it says, The recompense of those who wage war against Allah and His messenger and do mischief in the land is only that they shall be killed or crucified, or their hands and their feet be cut off on the opposite sides, or be exiled from the land. That is their disgrace in this world, and a great torment is theirs in the hereafter. It's very clear that the religion of Islam, according to its Islamic texts, is geared against the Jewish and Christian worldview, given that they are explicitly condemned by the Quran. Surah 9, Ayah 30 states, And the Jews say, Uzair, Ezra, is the son of Allah. And the Christians say, the Messiah is the son of Allah. These are the words of their mouth. They imitate the saying of those who disbelieved before. May Allah destroy them how they are turned away. Now it's interesting that the Quran fails to properly describe the faith of the Jews given that Ezra was seen as a man just as everyone else. Jesus is seen as God by the Christians, by us, and as the son of God. But he is not the son of Allah, a very different foreign God than that of the Bible. But in either case, Whether they correctly describe this or not, both the Jews and Christians are to be utterly destroyed by Allah. That is how the Quran views our communities. Now we can temporarily move away from the Quran and look upon the Islamic tradition in which we read, fight in the name of Allah and in the way of Allah. Fight against those who disbelieve in Allah. Make a holy war. When you meet your enemies who are polytheists, invite them to three courses of action. If they respond to any of these, you also accept it and withhold yourself from doing them any harm. Invite them to accept Islam. If they respond to you, accept it from them and desist from fighting against them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them the jizya, which is the tax. If they agree to pay, accept it from them and hold off your hands. If they refuse to pay the tax, seek Allah's help and fight them. Now read carefully. There are three options with instructions for the Muslim. Either one, the non-Muslims accept Islam. Two, the non-Muslim rejects Islam, but agrees to pay the jizya, the tax. Or three, the non-Muslim rejects both Islam and the tax. In that case, the first two cases, they are to be spared. The third option, the third case, they are to be killed. There's more, which it's written the prophet said the person who participates in holy battles in Allah's cause and nothing compels him to do so except belief in Allah and his apostles will be recompensed by Allah either with a reward or booty if he survives or will be admitted to paradise if he is killed in the battle as a martyr. Had I not found it difficult for my followers, then I would not remain behind any Syria going for a jihad and I would have loved to be martyred in Allah's cause and then made alive and then martyred and then made alive and then again martyred in his cause. This is the attitude towards martyrdom, that if, if Muhammad could fight and die, he would be willing to live, fight, and die again, to live, fight, and die again, and again, and again, and again. If the Islamic prophet Muhammad was the standard by which Muslims must be measured by, then logically, that follows that the ambition should be to emulate Muhammad, even in this. This is clearly disturbing, and even moderate Muslims will disagree on this matter. But it's not a matter of diversity of opinions. It's about what does consistency to the Islamic texts actually look like. Additionally, we also find in the traditions that Allah's apostle said, I have been ordered by Allah to fight against the people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that Muhammad is Allah's apostle and offer the prayers perfectly and give the obligatory charity. Muhammad is ordered to fight. And it does not say to defend himself, to defend his family or his people. It's a fight without conditions, justifying violence in the name of Islam to make Islam the dominant religion of the world and outlawing all other belief systems. You may have heard that Islam was the fastest growing religion in the world. It is the fastest growing enforced religion in the world. For the jihadist, it's recorded in the traditions Allah Guarantees that he will admit Mujahid, warriors, in his case, into paradise if he is killed. Otherwise, he will return him to his home safely with rewards and war booty. This is the reward for the jihadists. This is the goal and promise for the soldiers of ISIS, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and all other Islamic terrorists and radicals. Automatic entry into paradise without need of undergoing purification and hell prior to their entry plundering and pillaging. If they survive, they can enjoy the goods of war. And what does that mean? Of course, uh, according to the Hadith, and some many Muslims believe this, according to some, some Muslim scholars as well, that if you were to just you know, live your normal Muslim life, not die as a martyr, and you were to die, you'd, you may have to go through hell as a purification process before you can go into paradise. Well, mart- if you were to die as a martyr, you can skip that, your automatic entrance. It's an express ticket to Islamic paradise. Also consider that Muhammad was not kind to the Jews and the Christians with a strong vision for an Islamic future in which in the traditions say it has been narrated by Umar al khattab that he heard the messenger of Allah, may peace be upon him, say, I will expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslim. Muhammad wanted to purge the Arabian Peninsula of all Christians and Jews. An unethical and violent cleansing foreign to the Christian scriptures, but faithful to to the Quran. This is because Surah 5, Ayah 51 of the Quran states, O ye who believe, take not the Jews and the Christians for friends. They are friends one to another. He among you who taketh them for friends is one of them. Lo, Allah guideth not wrongdoing folk. If you were to be in Saudi Arabia today, you wouldn't be able to wear a Star of David or even a cross around your neck. Or even open a church. It's illegal. You'd be allowed to work in Saudi Arabia, but you wouldn't be allowed to practice your religion unless it was the Islamic religion. According to Surah 98, Ayah 6, Verily, those who disbelieve from among the people of the Scripture and Al-Mushruqin will abide in the fire of hell. They are the worst of creatures. Disbelieve what? Disbelieve Islam, the Quran, and the Prophet Muhammad. Who are the people of the Scripture? Christians and Jews. What are we then? The worst of creatures, according to the Islamic faith, the Islamic text. Who are the best of creatures then? Surah 98, Ayah 7 states, Those who have faith and do righteous deeds, they are the best of creatures. Who does this refer to? The Muslims. They are the best of creatures. It's foreign to the biblical understanding of that God created all men and women equal in His image. This idea of superiority is reinforced in the Quran, such as Surah, 3, Ayah 110, Ye are the best of peoples, evolved for mankind, enjoining what is right, forbidding what is wrong, and believing in Allah. If only the people of the book had faith, it were best for them. Among them are some who have faith, but most of them are perverted transgressors. What does that mean? Among them are some who have faith, referring to some of them, some of those who have claimed to be Christians, which are the people of the book, have converted to Islam but most of them are perverted transgressors. We even find anti-Semitism in the traditions. I'm not saying that Muslims are anti-Semitic, but I am saying in the traditions and Islamic texts, we do find anti-Semitism in which the prophet said the last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews and the Muslims would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree and a stone or a tree itself would say Muslim or the servant of Allah there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Consider the beginning of the Quran, which is also a component to Islamic prayer, Surah 1, Ayah 1-7. to In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful, praise be to Allah, Lord of the Worlds, the Beneficent, the Merciful, owner of the Day of Judgment. Thee we worship, thee we ask for help. Show us the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast favored, not of those who are in thine anger, nor of those who go astray. Who are those whom Allah favors? Muslims. Who are those who have earned Allah's anger? The Jews, because they killed his prophets. Who are those who have gone astray from Allah? The Christians. Why? Because we believe in the Trinity. We believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. as three persons in one being. This then explains the philosophy of ISIS. Their interpretation of the Quran and their worldview based on Quranic passages and the traditions. ISIS, also referred to as Daesh, has made headlines from Iraq to France and even Canada. They've horrified the Western world with its unspeakable violence and its evident magnetism for youth who have left their respective countries to fight overseas for ISIS. We went to Trinidad to engage in debates and to speak at a couple of churches in February. And we were speaking with a lot of the people of the communities, and a lot of them had said that many youth and young adults had left Trinidad secretly to fight for ISIS. The strategy of ISIS is similar to that of their predecessors, the Wahhabists, another radical Islamic group which aimed to bring the peoples whom they conquered into submission. They aimed to instill fear. ISIS is a supposed improved form of its past predecessor, Wahhabism, in that it reclaims the Puritanism of Islam, purging it from all inconsistencies and embracing the violent text of the Quran and the example of Muhammad as found in the traditions. ISIS is not a group that has no base or goal in mind. They understand the eschatology of the Quran, the last days, and their hope for their version of Jesus to return from the heavens to slaughter the non-believers, to slaughter the Jews and the Christians. Al-Qaeda is another terrorist group believed to have stemmed from Wahhabism, but despite that, the diversity of these r- radical terrorist groups, they all share a very common thread. Their interpretation of the Quran and their call to jihad, holy war. Now, there is no doubt that there exists a wide diversity of interpretations on the Quranic text and traditions, which includes groups of moderate Muslims who will strongly contest otherwise and claim that Islam is a religion of peace and that what we're reading here and seeing here is not the true understanding of Islam. And I do not question the sincerity of my Muslim friends and my neighbors and their earnestness and their eagerness to desire peace in the midst of religious plurality in today's society even going so far as to admit that their views would actually result in them being killed in the Middle East. But this is where we must recognize the difference between the person and the religion of Islam. Because even though the person may claim peace and harmlessness, Islam, as defined by the Quran, the Hadith and the Sirah, the biographies of the Prophet Muhammad, is not a religion of peace, but rather quite the opposite. You see, our moderate, moderate Muslim friends have been led to believe Otherwise, They're not being consistent. They're being rather inconsistent with their own worldview, with their own Islamic texts. That's why they're moderate. My claim then is that modern Muslims are not being consistent with their belief system. They're not being consistent with the Quran. And though they may claim peace, their holy book tells them otherwise. Now, it's difficult to consider Islam a religion of peace given that it has continued to foster and produce faith communities bent on Jihad, striking terror and delivering death and destruction. It is ISIS, I believe, that are being consistent with the Islamic texts. It's horrible, it's evil, we condemn it, but they're be consistent with the texts. And it ought to serve as a warning to Muslims and non-Muslims that this is what the true face of Islam is when it is consistent to its religious texts. With that being said, we need to be careful from generalizing the acts of radical Islamic groups that we see on television and what's happening we must avoid generalizing these acts and attributing them to all Muslim communities. But rather, we ought to recognize the inconsistencies in their beliefs and behaviors and demonstrate to them that as Christians, we love them, we love all of them, and it is our desire to see them saved and delivered from a self-destructing worldview. I can't, for example, see what's happening on the television screen or what's happening with ISIS and say, well, my Muslim neighbor who lives beside me is one of them just because he's a Muslim. That would be wrong. We certainly need to acknowledge that. And even if he was, that doesn't mean that he's exempt from hearing the gospel of Christ. This is heavy material. It weighs upon our minds and hearts. But we are to remember the great task that we've been assigned, the mission of the church, which what Reach Beyond understands. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Christian gospel is a complete contrast, a stark contrast to what we see in Islam. The biblical texts is a stark contrast to what we find in the Islamic texts, where we find in Islam to kill your enemies, to kill the Christians and the Jews. In the Bible, we see we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are to make disciples of all the nations. That includes the Arabian Peninsula. That includes Saudi Arabia. That includes all nations that seek to purge Christians and Jews from the face of the earth. God still wants to bring the gospel, desires to bring the gospel to these people. That is our calling, to proclaim and apply the truth of the gospel of Christ, the Savior and King. And as we sow the seeds, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his sovereign word, we can trust that in the end it will be the gospel that will triumph. It won't be a violent overcoming of the world as we see with Islam. It won't be an enforced religion upon all peoples as we see with Islam. It will be a whole people, nations upon nations, being drawn to the gospel of Christ as they embrace the grace and mercy of God and witness His love for His creation of people. As it is written, how can they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Last weekend, I met a young Muslim. We were in uh, Winnipeg in his early 20s. He was attending a church camp for the long weekend. And the whole time, I actually thought that he was uh, taking notes on my apologetic method, my methodology to bring back to his mosque and say, this is how they're going to try to proclaim the gospel to us and convert us to Christianity. But it turns out after the two... uh, two of my lectures, we spoke afterwards, and he told me that he had been searching the Christian scriptures for the past year. It finally dawned on him that day that according to his own words, I've come to realize that my Islamic faith doesn't make sense of everything, but the Christian faith does make sense of everything. Understanding the cost of what it means to be a Muslim leaving Islam for Christianity, for Christ, he cried as he made that decision to embrace Christ and forsake Islam. God is at work through his church, through his spirit, and even through visitations such as dreams and visions where we can't reach to reach the Muslim world with the gospel and to deliver them from the false teaching of Islam and to the truth of the Christian scriptures. Let us pray together for the persecuted church, for the persecutors, and for the whole Islamic community.